Uh, This morning we will conclude John chapter 10. A pivotal portion of scripture this morning. So I'm going to ask that you take serious heed and focus this morning. And typically for any believer, as you know, Sunday morning, the worship service begins Saturday night. Amen? We must begin to prepare our minds to receive the all-powerful, all-eternal, the everlasting Word of God. So I pray that uh, you're prepared this morning as we read the words of Scripture. And I'm going to begin this morning by reading John chapter 10, beginning of verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And I'm going to ask that you turn there now as we begin our study. Then... The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. And he went away. That is the tragic conclusion to the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And that going away will become the calm before the storm for Christ. Because the next time he enters into Jerusalem will be for Passover, where he is the final and ultimate Passover lamb. But it's also a tragic indictment for those that Jesus went away from. Key word, he went away. The closing of John chapter 10 with his going away not only concludes his public ministry, but also confirms the majority of the Jews, Israel as a nation, in their blindness. They will be confirmed in their unbelief. They will be left to themselves steeped in unbelief. And he will never come to them again. Beginning in chapter 11, the ministry of Jesus Christ becomes private. And he focuses on those that are closest to him. He focuses on ministering to those who've been given sight to see. 
eyes to see and ears to hear. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 3, that unless you are born again, you cannot what? You cannot see the kingdom. You cannot perceive, you cannot comprehend, you cannot embrace the truth of God unless you are born again. When the Lord's own disciples did see the glory of Christ and thus believed, Jesus said in Matthew 13, 16, Blessed are your eyes for they what? For they see and your ears for they hear. This is that special work of grace, that special blessing that changes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh that enables the once blind sinner to see. That bursts life into the heart of the spiritually dead and damned. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Some said John the Baptist brought back from the dead. Some said, said, some said Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter correctly answered, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Jesus answered and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood, what? Has not, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus did not say, Peter, you're, you're a blessing. He did not say, Peter, you're brilliant. You're distinct from the others. No. He said you are greatly blessed by God because you've been enabled to see. This is what Jesus meant when he said, unless you are born again, you cannot see. Such sight, sight such as this, comes only by way of God's sovereign divine work. That's it. You can't stir up this kind of sight within yourself. Salvation is a gift. And if you're saved, you know that. You know you had nothing to do with your salvation. You know that every facet of salvation coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ is all a gift. You know that. Because, how do you know that? You've been given sight to see that. The gospel confirms that. Now, as you know, if you've been with us for any stretch of time here in our studies, you know that the Gospel of John sends a very strong message regarding the overwhelming sovereignty of God and salvation. From beginning to end, it's all the work of God by grace. The sovereignty of God, ultimately, ultimately, is also the reason for unbelief. In John chapter 10 verse 26, Jesus gave the ultimate reason that these Jews did not believe. He said, you do not believe what? Because you're not my sheep. He didn't say, because you don't believe you're not my sheep. He said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. In verse 29, we see that they were not given to him by the Father in eternity past, for all that have been given to the Son by the Father will, guaranteed, will believe they will follow. The assignment of Christ on earth was to come 
to manifest himself in bodily human form and to call and gather all that the Father did give him in eternity past. And, of course, to lay down his life. He said, no man takes it, I lay it down freely. To lay down his life for those particular sheep, verse 15. All that are given will, guaranteed, come to faith in Christ, and they will, guaranteed, follow. In John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me. And those who come to me, the ones who come to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39, All he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up, all-inclusive, raise it up, all of the elect, from the beginning of time to the final consummation, will raise it up as one in the end. The one true church, the one body of Christ. Here in John chapter 10 and verse 3, Jesus said, The sheep, my sheep, hear my voice. He, the great shepherd, calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Look at verse 14. I know my sheep and am known by my own. Verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now the other sheep are Gentile sheep. First, Jesus came to the fold of Israel. He came to call out his elect flock from Israel. But not all of Israel are of Israel. Not of all of Israel individually will be saved nor were saved. So he goes outside of that fold to another, the Gentile world. And he calls his own by name. Salvation came to the Jews first. The Jews were first in salvation opportunity, but also first in judgment responsibility. So he goes to another flock. And he says, I must bring them. They will hear my voice. There will be one flock, Jew and Gentile alike, and there'll be one shepherd. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no male. There is no female. We are all one in Christ. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. And what do they do? They follow me. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you're saved, you can't lose salvation. It's impossible if you could, it's not an everlasting life, amen? Come on now. Everlasting life. Notice, they're called because they're given. They're given because they're chosen. They follow because they hear. They hear because they're intimately known by Jesus. And because he knows them by his grace, they will guaranteed come to know him. And he gives them what? Eternal life. They're owned. They're protected. They were bought at a great price. They're covered by the blood of the great shepherd. And they will never be snatched. They'll never be taken. They'll never be deceived by false teachers or false prophets. It's impossible. No one can snatch them out of my hand, he said. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. That is eternal security. That's salvation. And that is what the true believer can be assured of. Now, if you were with us last week, we studied the assurance of the believer's salvation as revealed in verses 27 to 30 here in John chapter 10. Now, if someone does not have 100% assurance that they are saved, one of three things is going on. Number one, they're not saved. 
Okay, they have no assurance because they don't have salvation. There's no indwelling presence of the one who provides that security. And the one who provides that security is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit only resides in those who are born again. So if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have assurance. If you don't have assurance, you don't have the Spirit. And if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have eternal life. Therefore, you're not saved. Romans 8, 16, 1 John 5, 6, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we what? That we are children of God. That's the first reason one may not have assurance. Secondly, if they're a believer, okay, they say they're truly born again and they don't have assurance, it could be because they have unconfessed and unrepentant sin in their lives, which steals joy. When your joy is ripped off, it disrupts assurance. If you remember, the spiritual health of King David was dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. King David, great man of God, God said that he was a man after his own heart. David fell into treacherous sin. David fell into adultery with Bathsheba. David, in fear of being caught, had her husband Uriah put to death. David, a man of God, was an adulterer and a murderer. And he went one full year without confessing and repenting of that sin. He was confronted by God's man. And God pointed him out and said, David, you're the man. You're in sin. You repent. Remember that? In response to that tragic time of his life, he penned Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he said this, verse 12, Restore to me, O God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Whose salvation? Your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. He lost the joy, the assurance, the confirmation that he was saved. He did not lose his salvation. He lost the joy of it. He lost the assurance of it. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. God did not remove the consequences of David's sin. The consequences followed him for many, many years. You know the story. Thirdly, if you're a true believer and you lack assurance, security that you are saved, it may be due to a lack of trust, a lack of trust in the authority of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, the warnings of Scripture, the blessings of Scripture, the promises of Scripture, all according to his proclaimed word. That's a lack of faith. A lack of faith is unbelief. Without faith, it is what? It's impossible to please God. But he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. See, when you're not focused on the promises of the scriptures and abiding in the truth of scripture, you become overwhelmingly focused on your deficiencies, your problems. When you're focused on yourself and you're focused on your deficiencies and you're focused on your weaknesses rather than the authoritative word of God, who wouldn't be questioning their salvation? Amen? It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent on Him. It's dependent on the cross. Amen? The blood of Christ. The truth of Scripture. So those are three reasons that one may not have assurance. There's another group. There's many people who claim to be saved and they have a false sense of assurance. They claim with their mouth that they agree with the work of the person in, 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 in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they say, because I believe those facts, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I got my ticket out of hell. That's false security. They say with their mouth, but they do not what? They do not do. They're deceived. That's dangerous ground if you're on that ground today. 
So God sovereignly chooses, calls, saves, and assures in salvation his elect sheep. Very clear, without doubt, without any question whatsoever, that is clearly revealed through the scriptures. We've been seeing that all through John's gospel, especially here in John 10. So, as, as clear and as strong as the theme of the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation is concerned, that's very clear, here in John's gospel, it must be balanced against unbelief in the lives of Christ's opponents. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God does choose those that are His. He chose them in eternity past. They are His elect. They will come to faith. They'll be secured in faith. They'll never be lost. That is a fact. That is biblical truth. At the same time, that must be balanced with the responsibility of human beings to believe. So, along with the sovereign call of salvation to those that are Christ's sheep is the parallel call of Jesus against the obstinate unbelief of the Jews and anyone for that matter who's not a believer. Back in John chapter 8, verse 24, as Jesus stood in the temple, he said this, If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Believe that I am he who? I am the Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to me except... No one comes to the Father except through me. I am not one of many ways. I'm the only way. And if you believe that I'm one way and there's other ways, you're deceived. That's who he's talking about. In John 8, 46, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? In John 9, John 9 41, as he confronts the Pharisees, he said, look, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, you claim that you know truth. You claim to be a believer. You claim to be a teacher of my truth. You are not a follower of me. You're steeped in blindness. And here in John 10, 38, we'll see this morning, Jesus says again, though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in Him. So what do we see here? We see sovereign grace and human responsibility. They're both taught, so don't you dare deny either one of them. Amen? Because they're both taught, they're very clear. Don't deny either one. You'd be a fool to do so either way. So how do we reconcile the two? That's the question. Answer? Nobody knows, and nobody can. Now, Jesus could because he taught both in the same sentence. In John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father gives me, guaranteed, they will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. There you have the divine sovereignty of God and human responsibility right there. Same sentence. Jesus is God. So, therefore, he could, he could declare by the way of eternal knowledge what, what we see is a paradox, seeming contradiction. So, back to our study. Due to his sovereignty, look at John chapter 10, verse 26. He says to these Jews, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. Now, sovereignly speaking, the reason they don't believe is because they're not his. 
Now, we're going to see through the rest of this the human responsibility side. And because of their unbelief, verse 40, Jesus goes away. He went away. He leaves them to themselves. You never want Jesus to leave you alone. You never want to be left in your unbelief. He will never publicly evangelize them again. He's spoken the words of God and therefore concludes his revelation to the nation of Israel. All with the exception of Passion Week when he comes to die, to lay down his life. So Jesus now separates himself. In this now, brothers and sisters, this becomes a challenging thing because we're going to see this again in chapter 11. We're going to see this again in chapter 12. He departs from Jerusalem. He's out, as we'll see in the wilderness. And he operates outside. So I want to pose a question this morning. Please listen very carefully. Can we conclude, shall we conclude from Jesus' response this? That once God has revealed himself to a people or to a person, once he's revealed that truth, can we conclude that he then withdraws? He withdraws himself never to come back to that person again? He's the only one that can grant, grant sight to see. So once he's given revelation of himself, the general call of the gospel, regardless of how many times it goes out, when he just pulls himself away and leaves the unbeliever to himself to die in that condition. That's the question. So do we witness here an act of judgment upon the unresponsive mind in which God refuses to any longer pursue to pursue the unbeliever to leave alone the the obstinate unbelieving heart or the lazy complacent yes i believe in jesus i'll get serious later heart we're going to see what the scriptures unfold for us this morning so here's jesus he's back at the temple It's during Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. Jesus is being confronted in the temple for the last time until he's crucified. But on the other hand, in all actuality, if you think about this, it's Jesus who's confronting the unbelief of of the Jews for the last time. That's what's really happening. No man confronts God. God's confronting man. That's what's happening. They don't understand him. Why don't they understand him? They don't want to understand him. He's Messiah. Their preconceived notions about Messiah was that he would come and be a military conqueror and to relieve them from the chains of Rome. Whenever someone doesn't understand the truth of Christ, it's due to unbelief. And unbelief breeds greater unbelief. You build upon yourself the wrath upon wrath upon wrath upon wrath of God. Take heed here this morning if you're not a believer because I plead with you to take heed to this truth that God may grace you to believe today. If you are in Christ, be greatly encouraged today that you can never be snatched out of his hand. He's the word. 
What they're rejecting, notice, they're not rejecting his works. No one ever doubted the works of Christ. No one ever denied the supernatural, powerful works of Christ, the miracles, ever. What they rejected were his words, and to reject the words of Christ is to reject the person of Christ, the one who claims in the very first chapter of John's prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the Word. To reject his word is to reject him. Now, last time, we, we left off with another staggering claim of Christ. In verse 30, look at it. Jesus said, I and my Father are what? We are one. One in substance. Okay, we're individual persons, but we are one in essence. We are one in nature. We have one plan, with one objective, with one purpose, with one will, with one work, with one goal. We are one. Now, at this point, their mouths drop open again. They know exactly what Jesus meant by what he said. He is claiming deity. To claim equality or oneness with the Father is to claim yourself to be who? God. They knew that. And what's the main purpose of John's writing? The main purpose of his gospel is to what? Declare the deity of Jesus Christ. John chapter 20, verse 31 says this, These are written that you may believe, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. It's the only hope you have. It's the only hope anyone has. I don't care where they live throughout this globe, but without, throughout the world, He's the only hope of eternal life. He is it. So the indispensable, all-essential bottom line of life and purpose is divided into two categories, belief and and unbelief. And they're multifaceted in regard to Jesus Christ. There's true belief and there's alleged or said belief. There's obedience and there's rebellion. There's assurance and there's ruin. There's life and there's death. There's fellowship, there's estrangement. There's eternal security and everlasting perdition. There's those that are graced with sight to see and those that are judged with blindness. There's those of the truth and those that are deceived. Those that are fit for heaven because they're clothed in the righteous robes of Christ and those that are doomed for hell. Those with everlasting life, those that will face everlasting torment. All of which is contingent upon where you are in regard to Jesus Christ. One is either in or out. There's no in-between. One road and one way. There's a broad way. How many are on that way? Many. Many are on that road, Jesus said, and that leads to destruction. Many beliefs, many systems of belief, false ideas about Jesus Christ himself, that's the broad way. That's hell. But very few are on that straight, narrow way with the narrow gate, which is Christ and Christ alone. You're either totally saved or totally lost. So when Jesus declared indisputable quality with the Father here in verse 30, they responded as all determined unbelievers do, with worried wickedness, which is equal to fear and anger. They feared him. They hated him. Their sin and the darkness of their hearts was exposed. So what do you do? You deny it at first. You you spit out or spew out false accusations. They already did that. And then that, that will lead you to the third 
response, which is what? Physical abuse. So they pick up stones. Can't beat them with objective argumentation. Call them some names, and if that doesn't work, pick up stones. And that's where they are. Fear and anger. So we see now the final malicious rejection of Jesus by these Jews and their response to verse 30, where he said, I and my Father are one. Verse 31, then, look at it, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So again refers to the fact that this is not the first time they tried to stone Jesus. Back in John chapter 8, verse 59, Jesus said, before Abraham ever was, let me tell you something, I am. I am the I am. And they picked up stones, but he what? What did he, what did he do? He escaped. It was not yet his time. When the hour arrived, he would be delivered into the hands of man, but not one second before. See, these Jews had no difficulty understanding the force of what Jesus had just said. They instantly recognized that he had claimed absolute equality with the Father. And to their ears, that is blasphemy. Blasphemy. You know, the psalmist prophesied about the Messiah that they hated me without a cause. Jesus confirmed this in John 15, 25. They hated him because of this, brothers and sisters. They hated him because of his holiness and their sinfulness. His holiness exposed their sinfulness. It exposed their lostness. It exposed their religious fake facade. That's the same reason Cain murdered Abel. Remember that? 1 John 3, 2. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. In John chapter 7, before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, he's met by his own unbelieving brothers. They were unbelievers at that point. And Jesus said this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are what? His works are evil. Jesus is light, and light exposes darkness. Men love darkness, and if they're not in Christ, they run from that light. They don't want to, I don't want to go where, take me to a church that makes me feel comfortable. T don't take me to a place that's going to chafe my flesh. I don't want to hear preaching like that because that is offensive. Exactly, that's the point. And if you're in Christ, you rejoice in this truth, amen. If you're not, you want to run from it. Give, make me feel good, right? Give me some emotional stimulation. It's truth we're talking about here. And in the same way, if you represent Jesus Christ, you will resemble Jesus Christ. And if you represent and resemble Jesus Christ, the world will in turn provide for you guaranteed the same type of rejection. You'll share in the same portion as your Savior did. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you don't suffer some type of persecution for Jesus Christ, you, you better examine yourself to see if you're saved. If your life does not in some way chafe the unbelief of um, just, just your righteous life, examine thyself. The world loves its own. If the world loves you, Jesus said, beware when the world speaks well of you. Beware. Yet because you are not of the world, Jesus said, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world will hate you. 
Now, you don't want to go stirring up hate for yourself, amen? Nobody wants to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm hated enough as it is, but that's all right. You all love me, amen? Most of y'all. Most of you all. (laughs) Truth is truth, man, and truth cuts to the heart. So instead of saying anything that would correct a possible misunderstanding here in regard to his claim that I am God and I am one with the Father... Jesus did not back up, in other words, and say, wait a minute, I, I didn't mean to say that I'm God. I didn't know. He didn't say that. He goes on to throw hot sauce in their eye. You know what a boxer does in the ring? When a guy's cut, you know what you do for the cut? You know what you do? You go after the cut. You pound the cut. You pound it. You pound it. You pound it so that the blood will fill his eye and they'll have to call the fight. Jesus is hitting them in the same spot. So Jesus answered them, verse 32. Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Don't you love it? Man, if you have a picture of Jesus in your mind, of that sissy-looking, pale, rosy-cheeked figure that they have on a marble little thing, that is not what Jesus liked, I guarantee He did not look like that, I guarantee you that. He was a man's man, and he was a, the God-man. He was bold and perfectly loving. You know why he perfectly loved, brothers and sisters? And little ones? Because he perfectly, <laughs> he perfectly hated. You cannot love perfectly unless you hate. That's impossible. You cannot love with the love of God without hating. Because if you love with the love of Christ, you love what he loves and you hate what he hates. So you can't say, if you're a Christian, you're loved. Not this fuzzy, wishy-washy type of love. True love. Biblical love. The love of Jesus Christ and the love of Christ hates. So much so that he laid his life down for what he hated. Sin in anything that misrepresents him and his father. So Jesus does not relent. He will not relent this charge of blasphemy. That charge of blasphemy, that was nothing but a pretext to cover up the rot and the stench of their hearts for which he exposed. So Jesus is forcing them now to establish grounds for their accusation. Notice now, remember, verse 24, they are surrounding him. Verse 24, they came to him, and when he came to that temple, as soon as his face was shown, their hatred rose up, and they pressed against him. The word surround means to hem in. They circled him tightly. They got in his face, in other words. He didn't back down. He got in their face. He stuck his finger right in their noses, is what he did. This was a sword cutting through their soul. And they stood guilty and condemned. They couldn't deny his miracles. There was no way they wouldn't even attempt to do that. So they draw what they think is a trump card. Verse 33. The Jews answered him saying, For good, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself who? God. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses and their foolish interpretation of their foolish attempt at translating the Greek in the New World Translation. They'll say as they come to your door, Jesus never claimed to be God. 
Well, yes, he did. Take him here, first of all. They wanted to kill him because he said, you make yourself God. That was their accusation. They couldn't deny his miracles, yet they were not about to admit the real reason they wanted him dead. The real reason they wanted him dead is that their lives, their hearts, their purposes were all exposed. Jesus revealed them as hypocrites. They were there naked, open, and infuriated them. He made them look terrible. He made them feel terrible. He mocked them. He called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them a brood of vipers. They were religiously lost hypocrites. So it's never the works of Christ, friends, it's never the works of Christ that annoy people, that cut people, that bruise people, because you'll meet all kinds of people that you share the true gospel with, not the man-centered gospel, the true gospel. They love the works of Christ. Oh, he was a great teacher. He was a great healer. He was all these great things. Get down to the word, saying, oh, yeah, what do you think about the words of Christ? What do you think about the fact that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's not one of many ways. He's the only way. What do you think about that? See how they respond. It's the words of Christ that chafe human pride. Not his works. So Jesus challenges them now to, to objective reasoning. Everything has been subjective to this point. They come in with this preconceived imaginations of who they think Messiah should be and what he should look like and what he should do. Jesus is saying, be objective. So, Jesus goes on to claim what they know best, or what they think they know best. Scripture. They know Scripture, but they don't know the meaning of Scripture. You don't want to be someone who knows a bunch of Scripture without knowing the meaning behind Scripture, amen? Because it's always the meaning of the text that is the text. Jesus answered them. Verse 34. Is it not written in your law... I said you were gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, we'll stop right there for a moment. Jesus is quoting Psalm 82 verse 6. Okay? Which is a warning against unjust judges of Israel who were delegated the responsibility to rule over the nation of Israel. God delegated that responsibility to them. They were set in place to rule God's people. So they were magistrates delegated this authority to rule and to judge, and the psalmist refers to them as God's small g, who received their office by divine appointment. The word judge in Hebrew is Elohim, which is the plural name for God. That's the word he uses here, Asaph the psalmist. That's the word he uses. He makes use of that word as he refers to these judges as God's small g. And the context is this, that since these human judges or gods with a small g were failing to rightly represent God, failing to rightly represent his character, that he himself would come and deal and judge them for not ruling his people as he commanded. Notice, Jesus refers to it as your law. Notice that? The reason he referred to it as their law is because they boasted in being stewards of that law. They boasted in being teachers of that law. 
in law refers to the entire Old Testament. Which, by the way, cannot be what? Broken. It cannot be broken. They would have been the first ones to claim that the scripture cannot be broken. This, by the way, mark this down. This, by the way, this here, right, right here, this is affirmation as to the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The Scripture cannot be broken. So the judges, judges of Israel here were, were gods with little g's, or sons of God in a general created sense, to whom the Word of God came in written form. That's what Jesus says here. But even, even more so, Jesus, God's only begotten Son, has come in bodily form, and you, not knowing the Scriptures, want to accuse Him of blasphemy? You don't know the Scriptures. Although these Jews diligently study, PhD after PhD, they do not see that... Its very witness, the witness of Scripture, defined the coming signs of Messiah and that by witnessing those signs should lead you to the sign fulfillment, Christ, who's standing there, who they have hemmed in. And are accusing him of blasphemy. So, he accuses them of not believing what Moses wrote. And remember, Moses was their hero, as was Abraham. Jesus said in the past to this same group, back in John chapter 5, verse 46, for if you really believed Moses, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about who? He wrote about me. This is why Jesus scornfully, mockingly, refers to it as your law. Your law. So in no way is Jesus disassociating himself here from the written law by referring, it to, referring to it as theirs. But instead, he's magnifying the responsibility of the people to rightly, don't miss this, interpret it. To rightly interpret his word. So he's laying heavy weight here on, on its messianic fulfillment. Verse 36. Do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, then don't believe me. If my Father called judges of Israel gods, you're going to accuse me of blasphemy, the Son of God, the fulfillment of everything you claim to know to be true? You don't think that a Messiah will be referred to as the very Son of God, one with the Father? Is that what you're saying? You're accusing me of blasphemy? Look at my works. So here now, this last public discourse, it actually ends with a plea to believe. Did you notice that? If not belief on Jesus, at least his works, he says. In other words, men are clearly responsible to believe not only in the words of Jesus Christ, but also believe his works, his signs. 
because his signs point to the reality, the fulfillment. So if you sit here today and you're an unbeliever and you're always asking the same unbelieving questions, well, if God is so loving, why did he allow evil? If God is so loving, why doesn't he stop evil? Why did God allow the tree to be put in the garden? And all these things, and you keep asking these same questions and people give you reasonable, logical explanations from the scriptures, but you keep asking the same things, you are on just as dangerous of, of, of ground as these Pharisees are. My prayer has been that if you are one of those that you will come to faith today, that God will grant you the grace to see and to believe. Verse 38. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and what? And believe that the Father is in me and I am in him. In other words, if my works are evident, which they are, then at least do honest, objective research. And that will lead and cause you to conclude that I am one with the Father. I am God incarnate. I am the door to the sheepfold. I am the great shepherd. I am the only way to heaven. I am the sign-bearing Messiah. I am telling you that I am the ultimate final judge. Any superficial belief, any religious activity outside of me alone, Jesus said, is the road that leads to eternal destruction. And these words which testify of me, my works, validate my words, and if you reject me, you will indict yourself in the end. That's what he's saying. You're guilty. So this group was trapped. And their subjective preconceived notions about Messiah, they were dead wrong. And, and here's the thing, friends. Jesus must be looked at objectively. For your friends who don't believe, and if you're an unbeliever here today, if you don't believe in the authority of Scripture and Jesus Christ is the only way, go chart the prophecy. Go chart all the prophecy of the Old Testament Scriptures that point forward to the miracle worker, the Son of God. His works, His words, His cross, and above all, the capstone of the faith is resurrection. Go do the work. The objective testing of Christ. You know there's only one subjective test? Look, anyone who goes to events to experience something, they want to feel sensations, they want to feel swayed or, or, or touched. They're, they're looking for some grandiose experience like up in L.A. this weekend at USC. A guy by the name of Todd Bentley, the new phenomenon in evangelicalism. He's a false prophet, by the way. If you spend time listening to him or traveling up there, you're wasting your time and you're being misled. He's false. Guys like him are false. He claims to have a 20-foot angel that appeared to him as an apartment. He, he claims to, to have the angel and the anointing of, of some quote-unquote prophet of the 1970s, who, by the way, was a false prophet and denied the Trinity. He needs people in the stomach that have stage 4 cancer. 
say, sorry, sir, I was trying to be obedient to the Lord and he told me to do that. You know, we're dealing with spirits here and sometimes we have to chase out the spirit of cancer in the name of Jesus. That's ridiculous. But people get moved and swayed and they jump up like a bunch of maniacs and they're running all over the place like a bunch of chickens with their heads cut off. They're looking for some experience and they're missing the meaning of Scripture. One subjective test. Just one. Jesus gave it. John 7, 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, which means teaching. You shall know concerning the teaching, whether it's from God or whether I just speak on my own authority. If you want to know if I'm one with the Father, if you will to do my will, you will know. You know what the first will of God one must be willing to do is? The first will of God you must be willing to do is to repent and believe. in the gospel. And this can only occur by God's saving grace as he visits the human soul. Jesus does not, as it's been misinterpreted, he stands on the door and knocks on your heart. He's a gentleman. He's not going to bust in the door. There's only one doorknob. It's on, the, it's on the inside. And only you can open it up. That is contextual error. That has nothing to do with the unbeliever. That has everything to do with Jesus Christ talking to his church. When Jesus comes to the unbeliever, what does he do to the door? He kicks it in. He, if you're his, you will come to believe. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. We must understand the meaning of the text. When Jesus gave clarity to the meaning of the text, verse 39, therefore... He brings up Scripture. He gives clarity as being the fulfillment of Scripture. He does not back down. He does not deny his claim. Therefore, they sought again to seize him. But he escaped. Why did he escape? It was not yet his hour. It's pretty simple. They hemmed him in. They had him hemmed in. In verse 34, he just disappears. He will not and cannot be contained or be obtained until the preordained hour. The same attempt had been made back in chapter 7, verse 30. He escaped. Again, chapter 8, verse 59. He escaped. It all began back in chapter 5, verse 18, when he healed the man, the paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda. They sought even more to kill him, but they could not. Not until the hour. And here it is, verse 40. He went away. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. The nation at large will be left to suffer their due punishment. They will be left in their unbelief. Israel missed their Messiah. As a whole, they were judged. Jesus now moves outside the camp as one, as Isaiah 53.3 said, who was despised and rejected. Even though organized Judaism turned its back on their Messiah, he'd not be universally rejected because he had a plan. He had a purpose, and that plan and purpose would, guaranteed, be fulfilled. So he returned to the place where John was baptizing. You remember John was out there preaching, prepare the way of the Lord, repent and believe. And when he identified Jesus, he saw Jesus coming down, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back in Galilee. So the public ministry of Jesus here draws to a close. Jesus returned to the place where he met his first disciples, John, Andrew, 
Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, who all rightly identified him. If you remember the first two who witnessed him in John 1.37, they heard him speak and they followed him. It was here that Philip found Nathanael and he said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, who's the son of Joseph, in John chapter 1, verse 45. They knew the scripture and they recognized the Messiah. So the ministry of John the Baptist here is in view. It's three years later. John preached in the wilderness. John's dead. They cut off his head. Herodias had Herod, had him, they had him decapitated and they brought his head on a platter. You remember that? And the people now are recalling the words of John the Baptist, the witness of John the Baptist in regard to the coming one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Notice what happens. Verse 41. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John, what? Spoke about this man are true. They're true. So although the religious authorities of Jerusalem wanted Jesus dead, we see fruit here from one man's ministry, don't we? John the Baptist. Three years later. In the countryside of Bethsaida. They had recalled what John had publicly affirmed regarding Jesus of Nazareth. When they saw... And they heard Jesus, they said, John performed nothing like this, no sign. But everything he spoke was true. And what happened? The result? Many believed in him there. Many believed in him. So as Jesus returned to the northeast side of Galilee, they rightly identify him, they believed in him, and they followed him. Now here's an exhortation to you. For those of you who are in Christ, be encouraged here. As you faithfully serve Jesus Christ, as you faithfully declare the truth of His gospel, don't allow discouragement to take hold of you when you don't see immediate fruit in your unbelieving friends, family, co-workers, and neighbors. You just keep living it. Keep proclaiming it. And then one day, one day when you least expect it, Jesus will show up in their life perhaps, and guess what? He may very well use your testimony, your testimony as a means to his end. And his end is what? His glory. His glory and their salvation. Their salvation is the means to the end, which is his glory. As they recall, just as this, these folks did, John, the things that you spoke about this man were true. You, Daniel, you, John, you, Kim, you, Sarah, you, Rebecca, those words that you spoke regarding Jesus Christ, he uses to illuminate their dead souls and bring life to their spirit. And for you as believers, an application for you. Don't close anything up yet because this is a pre-closing to the closing. For you who are in Christ, we, just like this many who believed, the many who believed, you've been given sight to see. Just like Jesus said to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. You haven't revealed this to you. A human being hasn't revealed this to you. But my Father who's in heaven has given you the sight to see. That's a grace gift, friends. 
That is grace that you know, that you can see, and that you can hear. Blessed are you, Melissa. Blessed are you, Kevin. Blessed are you, Jennifer. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father has. Never, please, never become unfeeling or casual towards the cross or your salvation. It's a gift. Salvation. Now, another wise application for the unsaved and the deceived. This is where we wrap it up. This is Christ going away. This, as I said, is going to become a reoccurring theme. See it in chapter 11 and 12. And this this point reveals the limited opportunity that individuals have in responding to the gospel. Limited opportunity. This is not merely about lost opportunities as many preachers will preach today. No. This has much more to do with a picture of divine judgment. See, people think they can just play around with God. They think they can manipulate God. No one manipulates God. The gospel is serious business, friends. So the question in in view is this. Now you have to follow along because we're wrapping up. You must follow to wrap this all up. Does God's sovereignty, as we open with, does his sovereignty, sovereignty directly rule in regard to the unrepentant sinner as he rules just as he does God's own elect? In other words, does God rule over those who will not believe just as he does is those in those who will? That's the question. Are election and reprobation equally arranged under the divine sovereignty of God? And let me show you what I'm referring to. And to do so, you're going to have to jump ahead to John 12. To help us better understand this, John 12, beginning in verse 37, gives us great insight. And we're going to see this in more detail when we get to this chapter. We'll actually exegete this passage. We'll we'll, we'll just break this down word for word when we get to it in a few weeks. But look at John 12, verse 37. But although he, Jesus, had done so many what? Signs. Before them, they did not believe in him. In other words, they would not believe. Now, this is in the, faith of, in the face of all of Jesus' signs, including raising Lazarus from the dead, which he'll do in chapter 11, which will begin next week. Raising a man from the dead who was already in the grave. And once he raised them from the dead, more people started to believe upon Jesus. So the Pharisees and the scribes all got together and they wanted to put not only Jesus to death, but also Lazarus because people were believing. That's the hardness of unbelief in full operation. Now, Jesus did many signs and many who witnessed those signs did give a short-lived superficial belief. If you remember in John chapter 2, okay, John chapter 2, verse 23, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, the signs which he performed. But, now the but cancels everything out that precedes it, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In other words, he knew that their belief was a superficial belief. And we witnessed this in John 6 when many went away and they followed him what? No more. The more difficult this teaching became, they went away. Many of you may not come back here next week. 
I hope you do, but you may not. This is hard. This is truth. Now, many believe there in John 2, but he did not commit himself because he knows man's heart. And this kind of belief is not saving faith. Just as those today who say and do not do. It's not true faith. Now, notice John 12, 37 is a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verse 38. Now, Jesus is citing Isaiah 53, verse 38. Now, they would not believe that, in all purpose clause, in order that. Why didn't they believe? In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be what? Fulfilled. Which he spoke. And this is what Ryan opened with in the beginning of service, reading Isaiah 6. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, verse 39, they what? Go ahead. Could not believe. They would not believe, therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah again said, verse 40, He, God, has blinded their eyes, He's hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw His glory and spoke of Him. Saw His who? Whose glory? Jesus' glory. He of verse 37. Whose glory did Isaiah see in, in, in chapter 6 in the Old Testament? He saw the glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. God in His glory before He lowered Himself to become a man. His glory. And He was standing before them, performing signs and miracles. And they would not believe. And because they would not believe, Israel therefore could not believe. That's divine judgment. You can't play with God. You do not want to play with God if you're hearing the general call of the gospel today. Because he may, as Romans 1 says, turn you over to yourself. He just takes his hand off and he leaves you in your unbelieving state. So this, ver this verse seems to make God the hardening agent of this unbelieving people. They wouldn't, therefore they couldn't. There's no way to soften that, friends. Not that I would try to. You can't soften that. It is what it is. As he continues to cite the prophetic words of Isaiah, he refers to the glory of Christ. Now, keep this in mind. Because I don't want vain imaginations going off. Keep this in mind. The primary mission of the Son of God was to save. And what's that birthed out of? That's birthed out of the love of God. Okay? In John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn, but to save. We see the same thing in John 12.47. Nowhere does the Bible say this, and I am closing, follow me. No, this is important. Nowhere does the Bible say that God chose men to be condemned. The only emphasis in His choosing is that He chose His elect out of the world. Uh, God does determine to leave some to themselves for His glory in the end. That's for sure. That's very clear in Scripture also. He, he left Pharaoh to himself. But it's very important to remember that Jesus does not enter a world of neutrally minded people. In other words, Jesus did not come to earth to where everyone is just a neutral minded unbeliever and He just said, uh, hell, hell, heaven, heaven, hell. No. He comes to a world that is entirely 
individually and equally already what? Condemned. John 3.18. But he who does not believe is condemned already. All unbelief is condemnation. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Why? Because that's our nature. We love sin. Man is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. He's either been set free of being a slave to sin and he's been given to a slave of righteousness because he's in Christ. There's no in-between. You've been set free in Christ. So, these that would not and therefore could not believe are justly condemned but yet fully accountable for their unbelief. They are not going to be pushed or manipulated into unbelief that they themselves do not want to be in. Very important. We see the same truth in 2 Thessalonians 2, and I close with this. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for that reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Question. Do you believe the lie that says, I can come to Jesus anytime I want, I'll get serious later on? That's a lie. You don't want to be left judged with that lie on top of you. Don't play games with God. I love you enough to tell you the truth. Jesus left Israel. He departed. He left them to themselves, judged. Judged. He'll do the same things with individuals. Just read Romans 1. I'll close with a quote from theologian Don Carson. Quote, For these men, the eschatological verdict, which means the end verdict, has already come. For this reason, they cannot believe. For them, it is now too late. Evangelistically, this approach functions so as to underline the urgency of coming to faith. Moreover, it assures believers that the phenomenon of unbelief, far from arguing that God has lost control, is rather a sign that God is active in judgment as well as in salvation. Since they themselves were once of the world, that's you, that's me, that's what we were. I was a lost, wretched, rotten sinner. Amen? So were you. Amen? Come on, somebody, get a witness. <laughs> they must respond with gratitude. Are you grateful for the cross? Are you grateful for the blood? Are you grateful that God the Father crushed the Son? Who murdered the Son of God? The Father. He crushed Him. All of his wrath was poured out on the holy, perfect, righteous Lamb of God. Carson. They must respond with gratitude that they have been received and not condemned. You're no longer condemned. And be wary of lingering unbelief in their own lives. End quote. If you're lingering in unbelief, I pray that you'll take heed to this very, very, very serious warning. 
that he will leave you to yourself and you will die in your self-condemnation. Come to faith in Christ. Believe. Do his will. Repent. Embrace him. Turn from your sin. And he said, ye shall be saved. Don't mess around. If you're in Christ, we're going to stand and we're going to sing together. A song that will remind us of the mighty work of Christ on your behalf and on my behalf that we may be ever thankful. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the crushing of your Son. We thank you that before the foundation of the earth, the Scriptures say that Christ was crucified. We thank you that before the incarnation of your Son, that His glory was shown to Isaiah. And when Isaiah saw it, he came undone. Unlike those who claim to have visits today, these false prophets who say that you've given them visitation and brought them to heaven and shown them hell. Unlike Isaiah, they boast. They masquerade and they run up and down aisles telling people all that you have supposedly shown them, but when you showed a true man of God your glory, he became undone, broken. And I pray for these false teachers and false prophets that you'll stop them. And I pray that the poor people that are of yours, Lord, that truly are yours, would no longer be deceived, but come to a knowledge of the truth. Help us to guide people on the right path of proper interpretation of Scripture. And Lord, we thank you for your shed blood. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the divine, hard truth of Scripture. For anyone here this morning, Lord, who's not saved, I ask that you would please invade their life. Please knock down the door. Please give them sight to see. Please give them ears to hear. Please lift the veil of unbelief, Lord. We pray this by faith. And may we never become complacent or callous as to the glorious cross of our Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Together we all say, Amen.